This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to our continuing exploration of the Wirecard Saga with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon of Affiliated Monitors. In this episode entitled Running to Fraud with Hermes, we look at the lengthy planning that went into the ongoing fraud around money laundering through three transactions in India dubbed Project Hermes. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon in our continuing Wirecard series, Exploration, Deep Dive, and otherwise podcast on all things Wirecard. Mikhail, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It is always great to be back with you and, and the Compliance Podcast Network. So, Well, thank you for that plug. Um, we'll take it. Uh, so uh, we are back uh, one week uh, from our last recording. And as always, we're going to spend the first uh, few minutes kind of catching up on what's happened in the last week. I would say things have slowed down, but perhaps not really. <laughs> uh, it, it, it has in, in a sense. I mean, it's, listen, it's hard to top last week's uh, bombshell with about EY, right? So this, this week's events, um, really all the developments are around politics and a few sales, right? So first up, Bits and pieces of Wirecard UK and Wirecard Ireland acquired by Bulgarian payment company Paynetics. I mean, eh, maybe it's a little odd. Uh, Paynetics claims it's excited to be entering the European and British markets. I bet it is. Um, uh, you know, they, they've sold off Wirecard Romania, which had the Eastern European business as well. So that's gone to Portugal. But really, the big events this week have been all around Germany, Germany's political scene and the Bundestag. So remember last last couple of episodes, we've talked about that the Bundestag kept claiming they were going to form an investigative committee. Well, that kicked off uh, last Wednesday. It's a committee of nine um, with some backup folks standing in the wings. And the hearings, um, they had the first, they held the first last Wednesday. Three working days in, and the knives are out. Oof. And this, this kids, this is going to be going for months. First out of the gate, and the day before the IC kicked off its initial meeting, Germany's coalition government agreed a package of reforms that Finance Minister Olaf Scholz, everybody remember Scholz, hastily pulled together. Now, if you don't remember Scholz and his role in all of this, you've got to go back to episodes three, five, six. But this is he who longs to be Germany's next chancellor, but has the misfortune to currently head up the Ministry of Finance, the agency with overarching responsibility for oversight of banks, Wirecard Bank, and publicly traded companies in all things Deutschland. That would be Wirecard AG. Poor Schultze. His dream of becoming Germany's next chancellor is rapidly slipping away. So he endeavored to convince fellow Bundestag MPs that these reforms that he had come up with would restore restore the business and finance community's deep trust in Germany. Uh, note to Schultz, if it's bad now, just wait until after those hearings. So Schultz said, okay, he wants Boffin to be a watchdog with more bite. Well, I bet he does may want to start with just giving them teeth before hoping they can bite. So the agreed-upon reforms thus far, uh, Boffin will get rights to obtain information from third parties. Yes, you heard that right. Hitherto, these investors, I mean regulators, couldn't even source documents outside of the entity they were investigating. Who thought that up? I don't know. The reforms will also allow Boffin to perform forensic investigations. Hmm, Go figure, a regulator over banks and finance companies performing forensic investigations. And keep the markets and public information of any early stage interventions they take with respect to any of these companies under their supervision. It'll allow them to let investors and the public know a little sooner than so far after the fact. 
So I know, listeners, you're already baffled that these reforms they're implementing, confirming that hitherto Boffin didn't possess these powers. It's all true. Now, Schultz had uh, issued, a, it went to a, had a press conference in advance of issuing these grand new directives. And of course, he blamed the auditors, blamed EY, and announced an action plan, right? So take deep breath, listeners, because here's another stunner. Schultz's big proposal, it includes reducing future conflicts of interest. How to do that? Auditors should no longer audit the balance sheets of companies they advise at the same time. <laughs> really? Oh, <laughs> and he suggested auditors should rotate every, wait for it, every 10 years. A full decade before a new auditor and a fresh pair of eyes come in. After all, not much can happen fraud-wise in only a decade, right, Wirecard? So, unsurprisingly, not all MPs were suitably impressed with Schultz's modest proposals. Uh, in fact, the Green Party, uh, which, which has a fair amount of strength in Germany, is now advocating that Germany toughen up its legislation to make it easier to hold auditing firms liable under civil actions. So now, EY is no doubt clutching at a straw right now that if such an amendment does go forward, it won't be retroactive. The German authorities have now assigned a loss figure. Bondholders and shareholders of Wirecard have lost more than 20 billion euros. So the next decade promises to be a banner one for certain plaintiffs' counsel, if nothing else. Okay, so returning to the investigative committee, or the IC, those hearings launched. Now, a member of the German Social Democratic Party of Germany, the SPD, and listeners, if you're not up in your German political parties, the SPD is the oldest political party in the Bundestag and one of the two major parties in Germany. This is Schulze's party. So it has come out that an SPD MP, member of parliament, Pioska Langenbrink, turns out he also had several side gigs. Now, he is an active MP. Not content with being a member of parliament, Langenbrink was a lobbyist. And I know, how does this work? He tries to convince himself to vote for or against proposed legislation. I don't know. And via the lobbying firm he was associated with, Von Boost and Company. Since the spring of 2019, Langenbrink had served as a, quote, senior advisor to Wirecard. I won't use the German expletive here, but we can imagine what is being uttered within the party. What with Angela Merkel's formal defense minister arranging questionable meetings between Wirecard execs and intelligence officers and the chancellery lobbying for Wirecard, even after warnings about the company were pouring in, and Schultz's light touch over the Ministry of Finance, now we have Langenbrink's escapades and they are looking particularly fraught. It has emerged that Langenbrink wrote a letter to Merkel's office saying any questions about Wirecard that the chancellery may have, they could contact him personally. What did the lobbying firm have to say about this when the press queried it as it came out last week? <laughs> oh, well, Langenbrink was just working part-time, and his work for the firm was, quote, unrelated to his mandate as an MP, MEP in Berlin. Really? Meanwhile, the IC is busily pulling back the carpet tax out of the German political rug that overlays Wirecard. So, as I said, it has nine full members, has eight alternatives, and they're all drawn from the various sundry political parties in Germany. In addition to clarifying whether the German federal government and authorities, such as Boffin, were informed of developments at Wirecard, and whether they missed a tick or two. They will also be examining if the authorities fulfilled their supervisory duties as it relates to money laundering. But their remit also includes exploring Wirecard's links to intelligence agencies and Russia. This is in their formal remit. Now, the committee is being led by Bundestag President Wolfgang Schabel, a member of the CDU, and the chair of the committee is an AFD party member, Kay Gottschalk, who squeaked in his chair on a five to four vote. Fireworks already? Yep. Why? 
Gottschalk is accused of being just a wee bit too close to Wirecard COOs Jan Marsalek and his political milieu with the intelligence agencies and various and sundry right-wing parties. Now, the IC is going to be working on these hearings and on Wirecard through June or July of next year. That's right, right up to the German election when it kicks off. That season will kick off in the midsummer and uh, elections are actually in the early fall. Schultze, of course, the SDP's candidate for chancellor, rightly concerned that how things are shaping up may not cast him in the most flattering of light. Uh, and, and he's gone on record of saying he's in favor of full disclosure at the hearings. Good thing, Schulte, because Bundestag member Frank Schaffler, a financial expert with the FDP, sought specific numbers around those Boffin employees who were identified as trading in Wirecard shares. Listeners, if you've just joined us, go back. It was identified that the very regulators meant to be providing oversight of Wirecard were also investors in Wirecard. So listen to episode five and six to get the full scoop. Okay, so Schaffler had demanded details as to the extent of the trading of Wirecard securities by Boffin employees. And with all things Wirecard, the details are, well, let's just call them troubling. In the first six months of this year, 56 Boffin employees reported a total of 196 private Wirecard-related transactions. That was only in the first six months, folks. As this was a market increase from prior years, uh, and and the Bundestag seems to have purposely not mentioned the um, conflict venture of elephants standing in the room, there is now what is being termed a special evaluation of each and every transaction underway. So folks, get ready for insider trading charges against some of the employees of the regulator, as they say in Germany. Mein Gott! So the Green Party, in the meantime, and they are represented on the IC, are leading are the leading skeptics in identifying what they have found, quote, nobody in Germany feels responsible for the money laundering supervision of DAX companies. These witness hearings for the IC are going to begin in less than eight weeks' time. So this past Monday, just, just three days ago, actually yesterday, what is it? The committee released initial names of those they will be summoning to testify. Chancellor Angela Merkel, of course, Schulze, Bavarian Prime Minister Markus Söder, and former Wirecard CEO Markus Braun. <laughs> Just what a polit- leading political party wants to see heading into an election. There are top people seated next to the CEO of the company that has perpetrated the country's fraud of the century. (laughs) Okay, so with all of this politics in mind in the background, last week we uh, 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 we, we raised the topic of some of the dodgy deals in India that Wirecard had perpetrated, right? And their ties to Wirecard to Asian headquarters in Singapore. And recall when we were discussing EY's cluelessness, uh, when it's India's office uh, identified fraudulent figures out of uh, Wirecard's India acquisitions, and then BDO's involvement in facilitating some highly dodgy deals on behalf of former COO Jan Marsalek and his Emerging Markets Investment Fund, 1A, which we call MF, and uh, Trident Trust. And these were shell companies based in Mauritius that tied back to these acquisitions in India. Okay, and listeners, if you've forgotten how Marsalek and his Mauritius-based shell companies have a nexus to Russian money laundering, go back to episode seven, Lies, Spies, and Wirecard. Okay, so we promised a deep dive into these frauds in India to kind of explain what's gone on. Now, you may need to write some of these names down because there are a lot of entities, largely all tied only to a handful of people that figure into this particular branch of fraud on the greater Wirecard tree. However, it has roots straight through the trunk. Uh, In fact, as you'll see, there's some original players here that date back to really when Wirecard kicked off. Okay, so key names, James Henry O'Sullivan, Gumo Holdings, OCAP, Senjo, 
Great Indian Technologies, Hermes Tickets, Star Global Currency. Let's call, let's call all of these Wirecard Masala. Now, the Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation put together the first analysis of these deals in India, calling attention to some very questionable transactions back in 2018. Now, supposedly, back in the fall of 2014, an investment bank in Mumbai fielded a request to locate a buyer for a small India-based e-commerce site that really largely made its modest profits from selling travel tickets, like literally train tickets, local train tickets. The company was called Hermes One Tickets Private LTD, or just going to call it Hermes. The pitch book, pitch book for Hermes claimed only about 3.8 million euros EBITDA. No buyers came forward, supposedly. However, Wirecard, a year later, would purchase the parent company of Hermes, Great Indian Retail Group. Not only did Wirecard get GERG, but in addition to Hermes, it also picked up Great India Technologies, Git. The cost of the deal for the whole shebang saw Wirecard paying 230 million euros in cash, cash, plus kicking in another 110 million euros in prospective earnout payments across three years. Now, this deal mystified people in tech finance because, recall, Hermes had been on the market for nearly 80% below that cost only a year before and didn't find any takers. So let's step back a moment because short seller MC Mathematica then took Surf's 2018 report and dug into the background of the seemingly highly overvalued acquisition deal. It turns out that back when Hermes tickets went on the market in 2014, the co-founder of the company, Palani Ramasamy, he's one of two brothers, you'll, you'll meet the Ramasamy brothers shortly, just happened to pitch up in Vienna. And he just happened to meet Jan Marsalek. Now, <laughs> we know that Mr. Marsalek is not necessarily one to shy away from the illicit Palani and Masalik discussed Wirecard purchasing Hermes and assets of the Great India Retail Group. Now, remember I said to hold on to the name Henry O'Sullivan? Well, it was O'Sullivan who brokered the meeting between Palani and Marsalik. And this is highly relevant, as you'll learn in a moment, because O'Sullivan is also tied to that shell company, MF in Mauritius, and a lot of other entities that connect to Wirecard. Indian public records indicated that between October 2015 and March 2016, so just about a year period, a buyer paid approximately 35 million euros for shares in Hermes tickets. Now, recall, Hermes tickets, despite holding talks with Wirecard in 2014, couldn't find a buyer. Now, Surf spoke with various Indian uh, venture capital folks as they were looking at the deal and heard Hermes described as being a small entity with a minimal payments business. They are better really just selling train tickets. Nonetheless, Wirecard continued to engage in negotiations to buy Hermes, going so far as to draft an MOU in January 2015 with the company. But then something unexpected happens. Hermes is sold eight months later to MF for 39 million euros. And this is, remember, MF is our Mauritius-based shell company. Offshore shell company watchers note that MF was formed very shortly before it acquired Hermes. Okay, so now this negligible Indian ticket company is owned by a shell company in Mauritius. This is now September 2015. Not wanting to diddle about and clearly not concerned with raising any red flags, Wirecard turned around and purchased Hermes from MF under that acquisition of Great Indian for 230 million euros cash plus that 110 euros in future earnouts. And for those with lazy math skills, MF octupled its investment in under 30 days. Now, 
Yeah, for May's tickets cost somewhere in the range of 35 million euros. Then the balance of 195 million, give or take, would suggest Wirecard paid that for GER or GIT. But GER gets only real assets, that's great Indian technologies, great Indian retail, were its ownership of licenses to operate two prepaid payment cards, iCash card and SmartShop. And Surf pointed out here, customers paid fees so they could deposit cash at great Indian retail branded kiosks and then use their cards in debit transactions. But that's the extent of what those cards offered. Now, Surf identified in Git's 2015 annual meeting that it claimed Wirecard had only spent 15 million on acquiring it. 1 million euro cash payment up front and 14 million euro in private placement, which is probably a good thing since Wirecard, I don't know, the, the Git's annual pre-tax profits for 2015 were only 21,000 euros, so I'm Everyone's probably grateful Wirecard didn't spend more. Seriously, 21,000 euros. That was their pre-tax profit for 2015. Uh, so Wirecard paid 15 million for them. Now, along with Git, Great Indian Retail and Hermes acquisitions, part of the deal also included Wirecard acquiring Star Global Currency Exchange PTE Limited. Star was said to be an operator of currency exchange kiosks and shops, but that it wasn't so much a private company, as the name would suggest, but rather a brand of another entity. Now, there were no obvious links between Gurgit and Star, but these acquisitions happened altogether. So in theory, if we're taking that approximately 230 million euros for the whole, and we're leaving out the 110 prepayment. We can subtract 35 for Hermes, 15 for Git, but that leaves us with approximately 178 million euros. Was that what Wirecard spent on the Star brand? No. Wirecard invested only 1.3 million in Star. Now, Wirecard didn't attempt to conceal these spent amounts, not at all. In fact, in its cash outflow from investments report, Wirecard India, it clearly indicates the money went out to these entities. It just isn't clear where it went. $178 million just essentially kind of disappeared. I know, you're asking questions, just hold them, because you'll see what unwinds. Through Every one of these transactions, Ameth served as the intermediary between the buyers and sellers. All of Wirecard's India-related transactions, including the star share transfer from that acquisition. Ameth served as the pass-through, transferring to Wirecard shares in Star Destination Management Company Private, which is the parent company of Star Global Currency. Now, the fund, Ameth, only held the shares for 27 days before selling them onto Wirecard at cost. Git, same thing. Hermes, same thing, only that was highly lucrative. In all instances, MF didn't even bother to hold the shares long enough to qualify for India's investment tax breaks. Now, money launderers typically build in the cost of laundering when the price uh, when they price out the cleaning process. So, no special tax break, priced in. Unsurprisingly, Wirecard never disclosed in any of its filings Ameth or the association of Marsalik, O'Sullivan, and the Russians to Ameth. Now, Mr. O'Sullivan, not content with the millions he made via the MF deal, structured another deal with MF partner Jan Marsalik by investing 25 million Singapore dollars this time via Ameth into a company called Gumo Holdings, private, based in Singapore. Now, Gumo Holdings Singapore was previously known as Usma Holdings and was controlled by Gumo UK Limited, and it was owned by O'Sullivan. So, in a sense, Hank, as we'll call him, was investing in himself. 
It almost sounds like one of those self-affirmation efforts. Gumo Holdings owned and operated a, quote, tech startup. It raised some $50 million in funding from a PE firm, Emerging India, also a Mauritius-based PE fund claiming to be a growth stage investor. Gumo came about because Emerging India acquired travel companies, Orbit Corporate and Leisure Travels, in the fall of 2015. Same time period, folks. Now, pay attention to all this because what happens next? Gumho signs a deal worth $12 million to sell software to Hermes. Understand Gumo, prior to MF's PE investment, that company ran a consumer travel booking platform spun out of Orbit. Orbit and Leisure Travel specialized in organizing trade shows and professional conferences. Slightly unusual target for fintech PE, I don't know. Amif invested a total of 100 million, 180 million, sorry, 180 million in the two entities. But Wirecard had additional connections to these Gumo-related companies. Orbit's director was listed as Ramesh Balasundaram, who was also Star's co-founder and co-owner. Additionally, the company was described on its shareholders list as a, quote, joint venture with the Star Group of Companies, a reference to Star Global Currency and Star Designation. And according to the corporate filings in India, Amif played a key role. How? In founding and controlling both Orbit and Gumo. And Orbit's 2016 shareholder roster? This gets really fun. Amif held 93% of the company's shares. Gumo listed Amif as its primary shareholder and used Trident Trust. Again, remember, this is Marsalik's. Uh, Trident Trust is Amif's manager. Well, Gumo listed Amif as its primary shareholder and used Trident Trust's address in Mauritius as its headquarters address. Gumo's Singapore subsidiary, it claimed Amif as its owner. So back in 2015, Hermes and Orbit were negotiating the sale of Hermes to Orbit. Amif received $326 million from Wirecard and then spent $50 million buying Gumo Holdings private in Singapore. Wirecard, Hermes, then recognized software revenue from Gumo and also recognized revenue from two of Gumo's Indian subsidiaries. I heard, I heard a deep, sharp intake of breath from the accountants out there. Okay, but O'Sullivan and Marsalik weren't done. You see, O'Sullivan was tied into Wirecard through dozens of his other entities, not just in India, but Singapore, where he was quasi-based, Malaysia, and of course, his UK and other offshore entities. Two of O'Sullivan's other entities, MindLogic and Skillworth Technologies, they also purchased software from Hermes to the tune of $3 million. And remember, way back, remember, Hermes was only earning $3 million EBITDA just a year or two before this, so what a bonanza that deal was, huh? Okay, so on paper, those deals with Hermes, because remember, it is now a Wirecard subsidiary, they make it appear as if Wirecard has some real growth in its Asian market. These were the same revenues the auditors from EY India office were questioning. You know, the ones the EY audit partners back in Germany refused to take seriously or studiously ignored. Okay, and then we mentioned Senjo at the beginning. Now, Senjo is actually an anagram of, of O'Sullivan's full name. Now, Senjo is based in Singapore and has numerous subsidiaries, including Bijli Pay, Walltech, Skillworth Technologies, International Techno Solutions, and, and there are a few others that we can set aside for the moment. Senjo, led by O'Sullivan, is a client of Wirecard. But it's more than just that. 
Here's how. Wirecard also does deals with a client known as OCAP. But OCAP happens to really be Senjo. Really, yeah. Wirecard lent over 115 million euros to OCAP slash Senjo to fund OCAP's new merchant credit acquisition business, the MCA business again. Remember those? Remember in episode five, we discussed the merchant cash advance frauds? So those supposed new products in Brazil and Turkey, remember those? Okay, so Wirecard lends 115 million euros plus to OCAP slash Senjo to develop OCAP's new merchant cash advance business. Now, according to KPMG, the funds actually never reached the merchants Wirecard claimed they were lending to. Where some of the money ended up? Well, that loan to OCAP Senjo, it was funded by an increase in bank debt in Germany, but Jan Marsalek and the other execs, they forgot to disclose it to the directors of Wirecard. Oops. And another 350 million euros of what were categorized as fintech loans, those still haven't been located. So let's unwind this a little bit further, because listeners, you'll begin to see a distinctly familiar pattern. Now, Mr. O'Sullivan is a Brit, and he's on shell company filings in all the best opaque locations, Isle of Man, Luxembourg, Mauritius, various and sundry islands here, there, and everywhere. He's a resident of Monaco, but he also lives in Singapore, and I think he's probably regretting this latter choice now that he is the subject have an investigation by the Singaporean regulators. O'Sullivan fits squarely into the greater wirecard fraud and money laundering scheme because in many more ways than just these Indian acquisitions, via his several and actually multitude of entities, several of his entities are being investigated by the Singaporean prosecutors. So stay tuned on that front. We, we haven't heard the end there. It probably doesn't help Mr. O'Sullivan's cause that OCAP slash Senjo were closely tied to Citadel in Singapore. And recall, the director of Citadel is the individual now facing 11 counts of fraud in his role in faking Wirecard's numbers as the supposed trustee of Wirecard Asia's accounts. Now, the dodgy deals Wirecard made with the Indian companies drew attention and the EY India auditors, auditors questioned it. And then alongside, you had the FT expose questioning of Wirecard to Asia partners and claimed revenue and a whistleblower, right, which prompted Wirecard to instruct law firm Rajang Tan in Singapore to investigate the whistleblower allegations just related to Singapore at the time. And that all collided with wait for it, a lawsuit by the founders of Hermes Tickets and get the Ramasamy brothers. Now, the Ramasamy sued an Indian civil court, Wirecard, Jan Marsalek, and O'Sullivan, amongst others, claiming the entire sale of their company was conducted under false pretenses. Mm, Yeah, well, with hindsight, it does rather appear that way. And the subsequent deal exposed, uh, claiming, and they, they, they claimed the subsequent deal uh, exposed them to reputational and economic harm. But it also subsequently led investigators to pay a little more attention to how those deals were structured. Now, the Ramasamis claimed in their suit that O'Sullivan approached them in early 2014. 14, and made a bid for Hermes tickets. Now, at the time, the Ramasamy say O'Sullivan was using one of his other companies, one of his other entities out of Singapore called Santigo. And he, he, was the, he controlled Santigo at the time. And through the Ramasamy, and, and though the Ramasamy declined O'Sullivan's bid the first time in 2014, but O'Sullivan kept in contact with him. And he submitted another offer at the end of 2014, again through Santigo. Well, they turned that offer down as well. Was it for show or genuinely the offer wasn't what they're looking for? That's not clear yet. But O'Sullivan is undaunted. And then he gets 
he's the one who intros Ramasamy to Marsalik. Remember that meet cute in Vienna? O'Sullivan brokering it? That's because O'Sullivan's already been turned away twice by the Ramasamis. Now, according to the Ramasamis, and this is all in their, their civil complaint in India, and, and they, they would go on to uh, file another in the UK, but, but we'll talk about that another time. Okay, so post-meet-cute, according to the Ramasamis, O'Sullivan was described to them as a partner of Masalik's and possibly greater wire card. Now, at that time, back in 2014, they, they hadn't really thought about these connections. By the time they filed the suit, well, Wirecard's counsel responded in part because of this suit in India. And this is the Wirecard's counsel in London, uh, Herbert uh, Smith Freehills, right? They claim the allegations, of course, are entirely spurious. Okay, so far, so common defense. And said O'Sullivan had nothing to do with the Hermes deal. Only later it came out that, oh yeah, he did. Via his stake in Emif. Oh, and it turns out O'Sullivan also had a little 5% stake in Git. So he did actually have quite a bit to do with the Hermes deal. Herbert Schmilf Freehills then went on to acknowledge that O'Sullivan was heavily tied with Wirecard, saying Mr. O'Sullivan has been in contact with their, quote, not mine, multitude, a multitude, I mean, it's like conjuring up fish and miracles, a multitude of employees at Wirecard for, quote, many years, and that O'Sullivan had been discussing, quote, a variety of subject matters, including joint customers and customer projects with said multitudes. Well, golly, that sure sounds as if the Ramasamis are onto something. The Singaporean prosecutors, meanwhile, they've been investigating the lot of them. Hermes Tickets, Great India Technology for their particular role in Wirecard's alleged accounting scheme. Orbit, corporate and leisure travels as transactional parties potentially involved with these dubious sales. And of course, Mr. O'Sullivan, along with, well, so many others. Listeners, for what is largely a forensic accounting report, the Rajah Atan report is kind of fun reading, so I encourage you to look for it. So what exactly is O'Sullivan's full story? Whilst it isn't all entirely clear yet, we do know a few key things about Hank. We know that with several of his companies, he ran them with a South African digital payments business guy, uh, David Van Rennen, including... Waltech Limited, and Wallpay. Now, Wallpay would become a leading payment processor for high-risk transactions. And here it is again, listeners, the recurring theme. Wallpay, what did it specialize in? Payment processing for online porn, internet gambling, and binary options. No discussion of Wirecard is really complete without that troika, is it? And again, if you're a new listener, um, and, and you've just joined us, uh, you'll need to go back to the beginning, catch up by listening to episodes one through eight, um, so you'll understand why the Troika is always present. Okay, so O'Sullivan took Waltech and turned it into Waltech Asia Private Limited and changed its name to Bijli Pay Asia Limited. And he served as its director until the day after the Hermes deal closed. Now, through a really, truly bizarre series of changes to management and the board of several of O'Sullivan's companies, O'Sullivan appears to have tried to reduce his obvious connections to Wirecard, although clearly not successfully enough. Using proxies, O'Sullivan appears to control Visually Pay Asia, Africa Card Services, and Santigo still, Santigo Capital Private Limited. Now, this latter company is thought to be the holding company that the Ramasamis claim O'Sullivan used in 2014 when making his initial bid for Hermes. Let's just stop and think about this. O'Sullivan and Marsalik were already buddies and business partners prior to 2014. So this particular set of fraudulent transactions for Wirecard, they had to have mapped it out well in advance. This was not an opportunity seized in the moment. 
This was part of a long-term game plan. And speaking of having history, Bishley Pay just happens to be Wirecard's oldest publicly disclosed customer in the Asia-Pacific region. Mm-hmm. And its holding company, Bishley Pay Asia, owns 95% of O'Sullivan's Skillworth Technologies Private Limited. Now, Skillworth is a Chennai-based payments company that possesses the trademark for the Bishley Pay mobile point-of-sale machine that's marketed throughout India. Okay. Now, sitting on the Skillworth board is one of O'Sullivan's buddies. Now, the Foundation for Financial Journalism managed to get their hands on a number of Wirecard emails and documents, all referring to Bishley Pay. And those internal Wirecard documents and emails, they indicate that O'Sullivan is well known to key executives in Wirecard's Singapore office and that they clearly understand he controls Bishley Pay. In fact, correspondence with Wirecard Asia financial staff suggests O'Sullivan not only knows the operations well, but was deeply embedded. Remember Rajan Tan's report I mentioned? It placed Bijli Pay at the center of a fraudulent accounting scheme and claimed that three years' worth of sales and purchase agreements between Bijli Pay and Wirecard's Indonesian office were fake. Now remember that sale, uh, Hermes sale that really kicked off in 2014? Well, in that same year, Wirecard gave a $10 million loan to Bishley Pay with no paperwork or business case to support it. So let's dip back into O'Sullivan's sort of deeper past. One of O'Sullivan's entities, International Techno Solutions, it was originally launched in 2003 as Wallpay Asia Limited. Now, the company itself is incorporated on the Isle of Man. And five years after Wallpay Asia Limited is launched, right, it changed its name in 2008, right? It takes on the International Techno Solutions name, and it registers in Singapore as another O'Sullivan-related entity. Now, the Singaporean prosecutors lists International Techno is one of the cited transactional parties in their ongoing investigation of Wirecard's accounting and sales practices. But then Rajan Tan had already alerted to it, connecting it to fraudulent transactions at Wirecard Indonesia. And another of O'Sullivan's entities, Kyrene Sarl, now it's a Luxembourg holding company. I told you Mr. Monaco gets around. It's core holding Senjo Payments Europe. And Senjo Payments, Wirecard listed them as one of their top customers in Asia. Hmm, anyone detecting a bit of a theme here? Now, supposedly, O'Sullivan was only an advisor to, and we're using air quotes there, to Senjo Payments Europe. Well, I guess one can advise oneself. Self, what do you think? Um, as to the stupid name of the company, it's still an anagram of O'Sullivan's name. So it does kind of beggar belief that anyone else wanted to call their company Senjo and then just happened to get it into exactly the same business in the exact same city-state as O'Sullivan Senjo. Hmm. A spokesman for the Centro Group told one curious short seller that, quote, James Henry O'Sullivan has provided Centro Group with consultancy services on market and investment opportunities. But then they went on to say that they knew Mr. O'Sullivan wasn't exclusive to Centro. So what, he has multiple personalities or this is like an open marriage thing where his entities know he sees other companies? Stupid criminal tricks. Crooks never let you down. Install a proxy director, but name the company that is committing financial fraud after yourself. <laughs> yeah, law enforcement will never realize it's really you behind the scenes. You can kind of just picture Hank sitting in his cell in Singapore trying to work out how they caught him. The grief. So now we get back to Arif. They, and this is the, the um, investigative foundation, right? They identified a proxy filing in which Sandro Group described as its, quote, assets or investments as including Bishley Pay and Mind Logics. 
Now, the latter company, MindLogix, is or was uh, a Bangalore, India-based payments company. The O'Sullivan entity, Centro Group, wait for this, kids, because this is where it gets really fun, began as a company known as E-Credit Plus Private Limited back in 2006, based in Singapore. Okay, prick up your ears here. Remember when Jan Marsalek joined Wirecard? Go back to Lies, Spies, and Wirecard if you forgot. Okay, so here we are in 2006 with E-Credit Plus in Singapore. Guess who the executives of E-Credit Plus's UK subsidiary, E-Credence UK Limited? Come on, guess. Just pick one. Come on. By now you know this. All right. Here's a hint. Who's this series' favorite malfeasant? That's right. Jan Marsalek. He was COO of E-Credence. So we might say that O'Sullivan, he's an OG like Marsalek. And a few years later, Marsalek did O'Sullivan a real solid. Wirecard purchased eCredit Plus for 12.8 million euros, despite the fact that eCredit Plus only earned 380,000 euros for revenue that year. Now, Wirecard would go on to rename eCredit Plus Wirecard Asia that's right. Now, here's the other funny thing about eCredit Plus. Back in 2010, Wirecard claimed it was passing its software through eCredit Plus at no cost. And in turn, eCredit Plus was supposedly licensing said software to a Bahrain-based e-payments company, Ashazi Services, at the not insignificant amount of $1 million per quarter. Ashazi Services UK Limited is incorporated on the Isle of Man, another, right? That's one of O'Sullivan's favorite corporate domiciles. Oh, and Christopher Bauer, remember, another Marsalic made man? He was involved in Ashazi as well. Now, eCredence would go on to be wrapped up in a deal with another moribund offshore company tied to Ashazi, and it in turn both of these would be sold to a Hong Kong-registered company, Ugrand Universal. Ugrand's 50% owner, Dietmar Nokelman. That's right, the former Wirecard exec, Mr. Binary Options, who's now a convicted money launderer in Israel. You know, we repeatedly discuss the lack of oversight and marvel at how Wirecard's internal compliance, legal, and finance folks could have missed all of this fun. Here's a fun fact. Wirecard's compliance team only comprised less than 1% of the workforce in 2019. In fact, a lot less, like less than half of 1%. And, and for context, even Dirty Deutsch has a compliance staffing at at least 2% of their personnel. Okay, so let's pick up on the Gulf states and their nexus to O'Sullivan and his entities, Marsalik and Wirecard. Because as we've just looked they're all twisted around with each other. Let's return to OCAP, Senjo's alter ego. OCAP and Senjo, right? A significant customer of Wirecard's operations in Dubai as well, according to at least the internal documents. And the FT looked at those. Guess who the director of OCAP was? German national Carlos Huser former EVP of Wirecard AG and Wirecard Technologies, and married to Brigitte Axnerhuser, head of digital sales Wirecard Singapore. Now, Carlos also led Wirecard's, Wirecard Turkey's effort. Um, and remember, that, that that's uh, one of Marsalek's projects with the Merchant Cash Advance. Okay, all unlicensed and a bit squiffy. Okay, so now Wirecard claimed at one juncture when journalists and short sellers were asking all of those difficult questions, that Carlos Huser had nothing to do with Wirecard or OCAP. Unfortunately, an unsecured loan from Wirecard in the amount of 115 million euro was made to OCAP in November 2018, paid out entirely by December 31st of that year. But again, being a member of the original Brat Pack is priceless as no sooner had the loan been made to OCAP, Wirecard assumed that there would be a potential loss 
and made a million dollar euro allowance, a five million, actually five million euro allowance, and then extended partial repayment to 2020. So now, of course, O'Sullivan and Hughes don't have to worry about paying it back. And that, folks, is Wirecard Masala. Next week, to celebrate episode 10, we're going to travel. We're headed offshore to examine all of the opaque credit uh, corporate structures linked to Wirecard around the world. So join me next week for Shell Games. Tom, back to you. Mikhail, I can't wait. Till next week. Yeah, till next week. Thanks to you and the listeners. Thanks to the Podcast Compliance uh, Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events uh, on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.